If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. Meet Tristan Handy, the founder and CEO of Fishtown Analytics, a Philadelphia startup pioneering the practice of modern analytics engineering. Fishtown's product, DBT, is used by over 3,000 companies to organize, catalog, and distill knowledge from the data in their data warehouses, including companies like JetBlue, HubSpot, GitLab, and the ACLU. Last year, to support Fishtown's rapid growth, he raised over $40 million in venture capital from both Andreessen and Sequoia. Before founding Fishtown Analytics in 2016, Tristan spent two decades working in data, both in-house and in consulting roles with enterprises large and small. Let's welcome Tristan. Hi, Tristan. Hi, thanks for having me. We're thrilled to have you here. We're excited to become buddies with you. And I want to start just with the basics. In your own words, what is Fishtown doing? Can you describe to everybody out there who's probably a layman in terms of the data engineering revolution that you're starting? Can you walk everybody through the product in plain English? Let me start with industry trends that like get us here. Probably everybody is, is pretty familiar with the fact that there is more data being produced today than ever. There are also more tools than ever to take all that data and centralize it into a data warehouse or a data lake. And the data warehouse and data lake technologies are getting really good too. So now we have this really great environment that has all or you know a large amount of the data that your organization cares about in it. And then we find out that that's actually a huge mess because there's more data than the prior generation tools know how to organize and disseminate to the organization. It's fairly self-evident that like a bunch of data sitting in files in a cloud storage bucket is not useful to anybody. Like the thing that you actually need is decisions and decisions need actual information, answers to strategic questions. And so what DBT does is it helps instill order in that mess of data that is sitting in the cloud for you. And I can get into more tactically like how it does that stuff, but that is why we focus on our mission of helping organize organizational knowledge. Can you give everybody a sense of how do you work with a company like JetBlue? Just like describe it in plain English. What does that look like? JetBlue is a wonderful example. They have, gosh, I don't even know the the number. It's like over a thousand different data sources that they pull into their data warehouse, Snowflake. They then need to do a lot of massaging of that data to get to a point where they can actually turn around and, and use that. And that one of the use cases that we're really excited about JetBlue using is that in their data pipeline that they construct with uh, Snowflake and DBT, they actually serve near real-time information to gate agents, to their gate agents, when they try to make determinations of 
whether you can hold a flight for five minutes and get somebody off of a late arriving flight and get them onto this connecting flight, or whether they need to rebook them on another flight. And so the fact that they can take all of this like messy, like thousand plus data source and actually pipeline it over to a place where a, a gate agent can make a decision with that data is really fantastic. And that is the kind of thing that we are trying to enable. Wow, that's incredible. Let's go back to 2016. What was your aha moment? You've obviously spent a lot of your career in data engineering and data science. And what was the aha moment to say, I want to start this company? And what did that first year look like? How did you get it up and off the ground? So Fishtown Analytics has a little bit of an unusual story. I had spent the prior seven years of my career in the venture-backed startup world. And I was a little bit burnt out on it, to be honest. It is personally challenging to always be running a thousand miles an hour. And so I said, okay, great. I am going to start a lifestyle professional services business where I get to just like do what I love. I love to help companies with data analysis. And I had some insights on like how I thought that that field would change. And the way that I imagined commercializing those insights was I would just be a practitioner and help companies deploy that. And in the process, we built an open source piece of technology called DBT that was our internal tool to deliver client projects. So that was what we set out to do. And What does DBT stand for, just for everybody's awareness? Yeah, DBT stands for Data Build Tool. It is like a very humble name. It's just like, it's a tool that helps you like build data sets in your data warehouse. Cool. So, so we like that. That's what we set out to do, and we send up some cool clients. And it was really a project that we did fairly early on at Casper, where we helped them solve some issues that they were seeing in their data warehouse. And we used DBT to do that. And they got some exposure to early versions of the tool, and they immediately said, "We're all in. Like, we want to do that. Help us do that." And so they deployed DBT across their team of a dozen data analysts over the course of the next month, and they've never looked back. And that was the moment where we were like, gosh, is this a product? We had really truly never thought that other people might think this is a useful thing, but Casper gravitated to it so quickly that we were like, huh, maybe other people are interested in this. And the rest of the story is a story about organic community growth, people telling people, and we had a Slack channel, have a Slack channel, it now has over 10,000 people in it, but every month, so new people use the product, they showed up in Slack, we helped them, and it was a flywheel that kind of accelerated month over month. What did that second customer look like? So basically, it, what you did with Casper was you had your MVP, got it out there, started working, and said, wow, there's something here, there's a product market fit moment that's really happening. How did you continue to iterate across the next customers? And I'm assuming now we're in 2017, and, and I'll, I'll get to last year in a moment because you had a big year, but walk us through what 2017 and 2018 looked like in terms of velocity. Yeah, so we instrumented DBT's usage just after the Casper project, and we've been able to observe 10% month-over-month growth consistently for the past four and a half years. And yet, like in the early days, exponential growth does not feel like anything other than the straight line. Like the numbers are still small. You're just seeing people trickle in. And so honestly, like we didn't pay that much attention to it. Like we had a consulting business to run and we would get clients that required new functionality. So we had a client in early 2017 that forced us to build a Snowflake integration 
And at the time, DBT was Redshift only. Snowflake was still like very nascent technology in early 2017. So we we built that because we had a client that needed it. And and that's really what it felt like for for kind of a long time. Like we were in there doing work. We were like, you mentioned in my intro, you were kind enough to say that we're attempting to popularize a new way of doing what we call analytics engineering. So really what we were doing during that time period, we were figuring out the best practices of analytics engineering. We were doing that by like being on the ground ourselves doing client work. It's funny, like I think a lot of companies don't have this like long, slow period where the organic flywheel starts to turn because when you raise venture early, you often don't have that kind of luxury. But those years were so foundational for us because you know, I have spent literally thousands of hours using DBT in real life client settings. And if you don't have that, I don't know where you actually get the foundational insights from. First of all, I'm going to repeat what you just said, because I think it's a really beautiful thing, which is for so much of the startup world, there's just like such a clear path. And I'm going to put that in air quotes, which is you got to start by raising a big seed and then a big A and then a big B. And while that worked for a lot of companies, that probably would have been quite detrimental for you. And what worked for you was that from 2016 through the beginning of 2020, all you did was have to actually make it work for customers in order to be able to pay your bills and survive. And by that point, you had built an incredibly strong, stable product that worked for Redshift and Snowflake and for a variety of different types of customers, big and small, that you then could scale. You think about it, it's like, maybe that's a better way to build businesses, make it work for customers, prove that it works for customers. You probably white knuckled those first few years in terms of like trying to figure out how to pay for everything. But on the other side, you actually had a scalable product. What was hard in those early years? Because we just made it sound really beautiful. And um, what, what was the hard part of that for you? Yeah. And I think that you summarized that really, really nicely. It wasn't that that was the master plan all along. It did end up taking that shape. But it was a desire to actually have something real. And the success that we had been slowly accumulating to not hand over the keys to that success to external stakeholders that we didn't know whether our incentives were going to be completely aligned. If this was going to be just kind of a mid-sized community, we wanted that to be okay. We wanted to like build for this community and we waited to raise venture until we actually felt very confident that this was a, a very big thing. So what was hard? Sure, there were a couple months where I was like, oh, we didn't plan this out exactly correctly and I'm a little bit worried about payroll. But there were no like truly near-death experiences. It was really existing in a world that wants you to move very quickly and having a different metabolism. Like we had to be very patient and say no a lot. I can't even tell you how many VC meetings I have said no to. Um, and, and just psychologically, that is very challenging because when somebody shows up at your doorstep and says, I'm going to solve all of your short-term cash worries, you as a human like are really want somebody to, to fix those problems for you. I've tried to be very focused for the past almost five years on answering the why questions, like why are we doing this? And I use the word boring a lot. I think that creating a business to have it acquired 
if that's the best possible outcome that you can get at the end of like your journey, great. But like, you shouldn't start with that as a goal. Like what, what we've always wanted to do is, is create some like truly lasting change in the world, whether that is for a small group of people or for a very large group of people. And, you know, we've wanted to have like a thing that we could etch into our tombstones and that desire the like the why questions are what have given us the strength to like say no to to be patient being patient's hard and it's also as we know good things come to those who wait um so let's transition to last year you raised two rounds of funding a nearly 13 million dollar series a led by andreason and then a 30 million series b led by sequoia extremely close together back to back explain that one of the ceos that i'm close with when we raised the b he said this is just the market catching up to what we've already known all along in the community i won't say that there was some master plan there. I'm a first-time founder, and this process has involved a lot of learning for me. I will say that it has worked out very nicely for us. The A turned out to be right at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, and it helped us to continue to accelerate and not worry about short-term economic conditions. And the B has enabled us to think about the industry in the grandest possible scale as opposed to you know locally trying to solve a very discrete problem when you have 4 years of cash in the bank it just turns out that you see the world a little differently that's a benefit that like i didn't know was going to come out of that but it's really changed the way that we've thought about the company you have a really unique perch sitting where you are running fishtown analytics at the future. You clearly have a, a state of the world that is just uniquely yours that you see in 10 years. Can you describe to us, if you fast forward a decade, what is obvious to you? I think that there is a secular shift towards the next generation of knowledge workers being more, I, I want to say technical, but I don't mean it technical in like the way that often we perceive today as like geeky. It's more just that like the practices that software engineers invented and are starting to trickle out into other fields, I think that process will just continue. Like more more and more work will be done in code and people will not be afraid of that. All of the things that we are struggling with today in data will feel very obvious and like, how could you never have had that? When I look back at the early parts of my career and the fact that like people emailed around Excel files and we like stayed up late and tried to get ready for board meetings and all of it. It was, it will feel like before the automobile was invented, like the data will just flow. What else are just obvious predictions that you can make? The value that humans will provide in the process will be much more focused on the experimental process. And we will be focused less on like the rote knowing what is true about what is happening in the business and more about proposing uh, hypotheses and interpreting the results of tests that we have put our organizations through. That will be the the like very integrative, creative thought process that that humans need to undertake, and not munging of of data into a shape that you can do anything at all with it. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. 
Cardin knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Tell us your story. Where'd you grow up? You ended up building the company in Philadelphia. So walk us through who were you when you were little to why Philadelphia? I grew up 30 minutes north of Baltimore in a little place called Hereford, Maryland. I don't know that there's like anything particularly so unique about my my young life. I was a know-it-all kid and probably raised my hand too often in class and didn't leave enough space for other people to speak up. I went to University of Maryland for undergrad. I was one of those kids that like got A's and didn't try that hard. And I probably honestly didn't really start applying myself until I got my first job. I was a consultant out of undergrad, I kind of through happenstance got involved in doing data projects at Deloitte Consulting. Um, and and that felt like the first time where I could really dig into a problem and, and like affect change in the world. I know that a lot of people figure out how to like affect change in the world much younger than I did, but it took until I was like 22. And I really got addicted to it. This linkage between like having the skills needed to make sense of the messy reality that we all collected in our databases and like being able to drive decisions. Like I was, I was 22 and I was able to meaningfully impact the decisions that 50 plus year old senior leaders at the organizations I worked with were, were making. And that felt unusual. And that experience is what locked me into data as a point of leverage. Tell us a little bit about the name Fishtown Analytics. Why did you decide to name it after a neighborhood in Philadelphia? And just, you know, I'd love to just hear a little bit of your point of view of the Philadelphia tech scene and uh, how it's maturing. So I moved to Philadelphia after a period of my life where I had been hopping around cities for, I don't know, five or so years and felt a little bit detached from place. You know, the 95 corridor, all the cities are like kind of close-ish together. And so I, I kept getting jobs that forced me to, to move to a new city. And when I moved to Philadelphia in 2013, it was also for a job. And I had the good fortune to meet my now wife like two or three weeks after moving here. And she was very rooted in place and informed me that if we were going to continue to see each other, I was going to need to be okay with Philadelphia as my home, uh, at least for a long, long period of time. And so I kind of adopted Philadelphia, not originally having any real affinity to it, but have really come to like some stuff about it. And and we moved to Fishtown or like two blocks on the other side of the Fishtown line back in 2015. And I fell in love with the neighborhood specifically. It is one of those areas that is going through a creative transformation where you see a professional class and working class and creative class all like stirring together in this like wonderful melting pot. And you can see old and new and people that work with their hands at the same coffee shop as people that work on laptops. And I love that energy because it felt very like the practice of analytics for me. There are some parts of analytics that are very creative and ephemeral and you're like using your higher brain, but then there are some parts that like 
can't be taught in a class how to do them. You must learn by doing. You must like practice your craft. And it, it feels much more like a, a trade than an academic discipline. And so Fishtown for me symbolized this, this melting pot nature of the analytics profession. Let's talk a little bit about you. What are your rules as a CEO? What keeps you on the tracks? As a longtime talker, I have tried to listen more than I talk in every conversation I'm a part of, which is, and it makes podcasts very <laughs> awkward for me. Your job is to talk, so please keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> I have tried to generate fewer ideas and instead be a steward of systems and cultures that generate ideas. I think that these two are things that are very challenging for the exact type of people who tend to start companies because you tend to think that you can start a company if you are the type of person who has good ideas and has been able to convince, using your words, organizations to implement them. And that might serve you for the first 15, 25 employees, but very quickly, and we're only at 65 employees right now. So it's not like we're a 500 person company, but like very quickly, you realize that like your ideas are not that good, or at least most of your ideas are not that good. And the best thing that you could possibly do is create an environment where everyone can learn from, from one another. So it's this weird, like what got you here won't get you there. You have to really rewrite a lot of like the expectations that you have in your brain about what productivity feels like. I could get into like rules about my calendar and how I spend my time and that kind of stuff too, but I don't know that that's like that unique or interesting. What I would love is, um, do you have one or two hacks or one or two, you know, is it sleep? Is it exercise? What are the things that just must happen to keep you sane? I have the hack of constraints in my personal life. I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And especially during a pandemic where childcare is very much at a premium, I have the hours between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. to work. And that takes away one of the kind of hero entrepreneurs tools in, in their toolkit, which is like, I will just work harder. And not having that tool for me right now has, I think, actually forced me to exhibit some of the behaviors that I think I was just talking about, you know, being the more mature CEO and not the like, put everyone on my back and carry them down, down the field. So like set constraints around yourself, like force yourself to work smarter rather than harder. And then like, this is stupid, but I just bought an Apple watch and my new year's resolution is to do at least one hour of walking meetings every day. And, and it has, you know, most of the time it doesn't actually matter if you're sitting in front of the computer and staring at somebody's face. Like we've had enough zoom, zoom meetings at this point, getting outside and moving and having other stimulus is, I think has already started to very positively impact me. Constraints are a really underrated thing. The tighter the constraints, the more efficient, the more productive, and you have to be able to cut through the noise. And I think you're right. It's it actually, it's a very good forcing function. My last question on you specifically is, what are you most proud of at Fishtown Analytics? When you look back over now the last four plus years, what's the pinch me moment where you're like, I can't believe that happened. What was it? I'm going to answer this in a less discreet and more continuous way. We regularly get feedback from our employees, from prospective employees, from members of the DBT community that 
they see us living our values. So before I started the company, before I like actually filed the LLC paperwork with Pennsylvania, I sat down to answer the question, what kind of company do I want to work for? And ended up writing the seed of what has become our values document. We have 13 values. We recently had somebody count the words. It's over 600 words, um, but they're very like, in, they're kind of controversial. Profits are exhaust. We don't pursue profits for them the, themselves. Uh, we pursue value creation in the world and then profits are a, a natural outcome of that process. So th this kind of thing. So I asked what kind of company do I want to work for? And the thing that I'm most proud of is that somehow, and I don't actually have a magic recipe book of like how to create a values-driven company, but we get the opportunity to periodically hold up a mirror and say like, are, are we living those? And it is so rewarding when the feedback comes back and says, yes, you are. I want to end on just a quick fire round. Um, I'm going to mm. ask quick questions. You give me the quick answer. Um, what gets you out of bed every morning? I legitimately wake up and think about how today is going to impact the world in a way that like, I will not feel like I've left anything on the table. Uh, this is a very unique opportunity that we're in right now, and I have no interest in under-delivering to the various people who really do care a lot about what it is that we're doing. I love it. What's your favorite book that you've read in the last decade? I really recommend the book Sapiens to any CEO because it helps you realize that we jointly construct the realities that we exist within, and the job of a CEO is to create a new reality, both in the external world and also inside the company that one is creating. And I just like did not have that language or that thought process at all before Sapiens. Love it. Fast forward two years, how many days a week are Americans in offices? I think the answer for me will be one. What's your favorite interview question? I have a 45 minute interview that I do with every single person that joins the company. And it, there's exactly one question. And the question is, how did you get to now? And it is a way of admitting that all of our lives are incredibly contingent. We could all be so many different places than we are right this minute. And so why randomly are you talking to this guy on Zoom? And it ends up exposing so many wonderful twists and turns that are a part of all of our lives and, and are so instructive about who we are as people. Um, last question is, other than Fishtown Analytics, what's one other startup or product that we should all know about that you love? Just pay it forward to, to one other great product that you've gotten excited about. I will uh, give a shout out to our partner, Materialize. This is a very geeky product, and I understand that like many folks that listen to this are going to have no connection to this, but Materialize is a streaming database. and the potential their technology has for unlocking the ability for organizations to make real-time decisions on data is, is very significant. And it's very early. They're not even in general general availability yet, but I think it has, has so much promise and I'm excited about it. That's awesome. Everybody out there who's listening, thank you so much for joining us today, Tristan. Those of you who want to learn more about Fishtown Analytics, head to fishtownanalytics.com and you can join us next week for the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. Tristan, an honor to have you here today. Thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun.